and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the word of the Lord. We're looking this morning at these texts that Danielle read as well as Acts chapter 2. Next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday and Eastertide will end and what used to be called Season of Trinity is now called Sundays after Pentecost will begin uh, summertime, Uh, though perhaps not officially on the calendar. Uh, We go with the school calendar, I think most of us in our hearts. So we will be studying uh, over the summer, at least this is the plan, Uh, we'll be studying Colossians. And I'm looking forward to studying that book with you in the summertime, a little Paul in the summertime. But I want us to look at the texts related, even though Pentecost isn't until next Sunday, we started last Sunday, to look again at what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about the Holy Spirit coming. And I'm particularly wanting this morning to try to make clear an important distinction between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit, because I hear those two terms confused all the time, and even in Christian writing and witness from some of the finest preachers and finest Christians, there's been a very loose interplay as though those two terms were simply synonymous. And so I want at least to tell you what I believe and what I think is pretty much the consensus view uh, among Bible-believing people of what is meant by those two terms. So let me read first just a few verses from Acts 4, uh, I'm sorry, from Acts 2, Beginning with verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then if you look over at verse 32, if you have your Bibles open, Peter is in the midst of his great sermon that he preached at Pentecost, and he's coming to a summing up now and explaining this is what's going on. Remember when the Spirit came and people began going around speaking in other tongues, some of the crowd said, they're drunk. And Peter said, I love the way he started so practically, he said, what do you mean they're drunk? It's only morning. Nobody gets drunk in the morning. Uh, But then he said, this is what was written, and he begins to open the scriptures, and he now reaches this high point in his explanation of what just happened with the outpouring of the Spirit. This Jesus God raised up, of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
And yet, over in chapter 4, and that's the last verse I'll read, verse 31, these very same disciples who had been baptized with the Spirit and had gone out boldly proclaiming the, the gospel in the very place where Jesus had been tried and crucified, now suddenly again find themselves under pressure, gathered together, crying out to God to protect them. And we read verse 31 of chapter 4, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it instructs us, but more than that, you want it to change us from the inside out. You want not merely to inform, but to form us and shape us. And I know, Father, we know that this will only happen if your Holy Spirit takes your word and applies it to our lives. And so I pray that you will do that now. Don't let me get in the way of anything that you would say to your people. If I say anything amiss, may it be recognized or just forgotten, but lead me as I speak and lead us as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to be so careful because this is, this is holy ground. I mean, this is, uh, we should all take off our shoes when we're on this ground. I remember, much to my own embarrassment, years and years ago, back in the early 1990s, right after the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, I was asked by World Vision to do pastors' conferences in Eastern Europe, and the leader of our group was the great Indian Christian Samuel Kamalasan. And I was behind Sam, and we were, he was getting up to speak, and he took off his shoes and walked up, and I got a kick out of it thinking he wanted to be comfortable. And then when I asked him about it, he said, no, whenever I preach, and whenever we preach in India, we take off our shoes because we're on holy ground. This is holy ground. Let's remember that. We're talking about God's Holy Spirit. And our Lord Jesus said that the only unforgivable sin is to blaspheme the Spirit. So I want to be extraordinarily careful in all that I say. Always, but especially this morning. Um, what is the difference between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Spirit? Because clearly, in those opening verses of Acts chapter 2, the baptism of the Spirit at Pentecost is described as them all being filled with the Holy Spirit. So if it is a filling of the Spirit, does that mean that every time someone is filled with the Spirit that they are receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And is there only one sense in which the Bible uses baptism of the Spirit, or is there more than one? So let me kind of approach this again, uh, a little biblical theology here. It's interesting, isn't it? We're used to it, so if you grew up in church, you don't notice it because we're so used to it. But isn't it interesting that in the Ezekiel passage that Daniel read, God is promising through his prophet Ezekiel that the day is going to come when he will put his spirit in the hearts of his people. As, so he's speaking of it as something not yet, yet to be accomplished. 
And then even more astonishing in the gospel lesson that Danielle read from John chapter seven, Jesus stands up in the midst of this feast and suddenly begins to preach. And he says, if anyone, and it was a feast that involved a, a water, a water sign. They went down and drew water and brought it up and poured it out. So in the midst of this water festival, Jesus stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And if anyone believes in me, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John says, parenthetically, Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit who would be given but had not yet been given, for Jesus had not yet been glorified. So again, he's speaking of the the Spirit being given as a future act after Jesus has accomplished redemption and has been glorified. And this, of course, is in keeping with what uh, we read in John's Gospel when John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. He said, I baptize with water, but one is coming after me who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then he pointed to Jesus and said, this is the one I was talking about. Now, why am I suggesting that this is perplexing? Well, it's perplexing because the Holy Spirit was always there. The second verse in the Bible, the Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep. Throughout the Old Testament, we have people filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking on God's behalf. David, when he had sinned so grievously by having committed adultery with Bathsheba and then having her husband, one of his faithful men, killed to try to cover it up. And when Nathan the prophet went to him and confronted him and said, you're the man, he wrote Psalm 51 and the cry of his heart was, take not your Holy Spirit from me. So if the old, oh, and Luke, remember that the Gospels open, even though we read them in the New Testament, they open in the Old Testament. It's still Old Testament until Jesus has accomplished redemption. And yet when Luke opens up, we have Zechariah filled with the Spirit, uh, John the Baptist filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, uh, Mary filled with the Spirit speaking. So what's going on here? How can we have the Spirit present, even being within people, and yet the promise is that the day is going to come when God says, I'll put my Spirit in you, I'll write my word on your hearts, it's going to be a whole new situation. How can it be that John says the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified? Puzzling, eh? Um, this, I believe, is the answer. The Spirit, until Jesus had accomplished redemption, risen from the dead and ascended to the Father, the human experience of the people of God, of the Spirit, their experience of the Spirit, was not in the fullness of the power of what Christ accomplished in his life and his death and his victory. So yes, the Holy Spirit was in David, guiding him into truth, convicting him of sin, but David was not empowered with the power of the, of the risen, conquering Christ now enthroned, who has put all things at his feet. The strong man, Satan, the prince of this world, had not yet been bound. 
He was bound in Jesus' ministry. That's why when Jesus was accused by his enemies of doing what he did in the power of Satan, he said, if Satan's divided against himself, his house will fall. No, no, unless you bind a strong man, you cannot go in and plunder his house. Jesus in his ministry was binding the power of the strong man. And that's why even though Satan's influence is there, it isn't in the way that it once was. And the power that the people of God now have available is utterly different from that of the Old Testament. The New Testament, the book of Acts, still calls David a man after God's own heart, even though he very publicly committed adultery and was guilty of murder trying to cover it up. Yet a man after God's own heart. Imagine if Billy Graham had done that. I think he would have had to step out of public life. Why? Because we have a totally different experience of the power of God because of what Jesus did. But here's the key reason that this is all so important. What we celebrate at Christmas and what we celebrate at Easter can do us absolutely no good except we experience the reality of what we celebrate at Pentecost because it is the Holy Spirit of God who brings to the people of God everything that Jesus did apart from Pentecost. We will look at the story of Jesus and say what a beautiful life, what a wonderful teacher, what an incredible sacrifice, what a, an incredible victory over death for him, but it can't do anything for us except for what God did at Pentecost. So what is the baptism of the Spirit? And I'm, I'm going to tell you what I think the Scriptures clearly teach. And there are Christian leaders who disagree, some whom I hugely respect, but I'm going to at least give you what I think the Scriptures teach and my reason. The Bible uses the baptism of the Spirit in two different ways. Some people confuse and conflate them, but they are, I believe, totally different. The first is the Acts account at Pentecost. That was the promise that after not many days you will receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. But Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 of another baptism. He says, for by one Spirit you were all baptized into one body and made the drink of one Spirit. Now, I would contend that those are two totally different things that are being spoken of. For this reason, at baptism, as I read from Peter's sermon in Acts 4, he says, what you're seeing is the result of Jesus having accomplished redemption, having ascended, and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, which he has poured out upon you and which you now see. So the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts, it is Jesus who is the baptizer, and it is the Spirit that is being poured out on the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it is the now present in the church Holy Spirit who is doing the baptism. He's no longer the one being poured out upon us, but now he is taking us and uniting us to the body of Christ in regeneration, in being born again. So those are two completely different things because 
the person of the Godhead doing it is different. Jesus, the baptizer in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit, the baptizer in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Okay, so then what is, so we're talking about Acts. What is this baptism of the Holy Spirit? This is the key to me. The great uh, church father Augustine said that Pentecost is the birthday of the Holy Spirit. Now, what could he possibly mean? You say, but he's from eternity. How can we speak of his birthday? The Son of God is from eternity, but we speak of his birthday at Christmas. That is when he joined himself forever to human flesh. And even now, in the presence of the Father, this one who was from eternity, still, in the mystery of his grace, is in glorified human flesh, bearing the scars of what it cost him to redeem the likes of you and me. The Holy Spirit was present among the old covenant people, present in the world, present and at work, but he hadn't yet fleshed himself and taken, as it were, a body. When Jesus' work was done, you might think of the Old Testament as the age of the Father, the New Testament period as the age of the Son, but from Pentecost on until Christ comes again, it is the age of the Holy Spirit in which he is enfleshed within his church. And that was a once-for-all baptism. He was poured out and filled his church, and he doesn't ever have to baptize his church again because his church was baptized at Pentecost. People will speak of receiving a mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit. I would contend that what they're actually talking about biblically is a filling of the Holy Spirit. So what's the difference? As we saw, these people who had been baptized at Pentecost, nonetheless, pretty soon got scared again. <laughs> they were preaching, they were being bold, but they were getting threatened and and. Pretty soon they're running back up and saying, we need a prayer meeting, I'm scared. And as they pray and cry out to God, once again, God pours out his spirit. This isn't, they don't need another baptism. When we receive the Holy Spirit, when we're born again, we said last week that in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, and it can mean spirit, breath, wind. In the New Testament, the word is pneuma, from which we get pneumonia, pneumatics, pneumatology, all air words. And it can mean the same thing, spirit, air, breath. So when we are born anew, we are put in that realm where we are breathing the spirit of God. And if we are spiritually healthy, we are growing, we are becoming stronger and stronger and as we draw deep drafts of the Spirit's life, moment by moment, day after day, we are enabled to grow in Christ. The problem is, like those first Christians, most of us have periodic cases of spiritual bronchitis or pneumonia. Some cases it seems more like emphysema or lung cancer where, yeah, we're still in the realm of, of the Spirit, and we're still just getting enough to, to live, but there's no power, there's no strength. So what might be things that keep us from experiencing 
the filling of the Holy Spirit, which we need moment by moment. Okay, this is point three. The first was, what's the baptism of the Spirit? Second is, what's the filling of the Spirit? The filling of the Spirit is the ongoing empowering of the Holy Spirit. He is our life, and we need to draw deeply of that life. But we don't. So why? What are the things that keep us from the power of the Holy Spirit? Three things, quickly. And there are three ways that the New Testament speaks of us pushing the Spirit away. The first is that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is key to your life, so don't grieve him. And there, listen carefully, brothers and sisters, He's talking about how we get along with each other. He's talking about how that church loves each other, how they care for each other, how they talk to each other, how they relate to each other. And he's saying, if you're not doing this, if you are not loving one another, you're grieving the Holy Spirit and you begin to lose power. You begin to cough spiritually. You you get winded easily. Why? Because the Spirit is grieved. He's beginning, as it were, just to step back. And then Paul writes in the final chapter of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, just before that magnificent benediction, he writes that don't despise prophecy. In other words, listen to the word of God. When the word of God is being taught, don't just shut off. Don't just say, I'll listen later. Don't despise that. Listen up. And then he says, avoid every form of evil, everything that appears that would cause other people to say, you call yourself a Christian and you're involved in that? And then he says, don't quench the Holy Spirit. So you can grieve the Holy Spirit. It's even a harder thing if you quench the Spirit. That's just to, as it were, to throw water on the fire of the Spirit and just begin to be powerless. And then finally, the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 warns us that if after after the Lord has saved us, after we have known the reality of the kingdom and the power, if we just go back to living life the way we did before, he said it's as if we were just throwing the blood of Christ back in his face, mocking his sacrifice, and he says, and outraging the spirit of holiness. So there's this movement of grieving the spirit and then quenching the spirit, and then outraging the spirit of holiness. And I I have to wonder sometimes in my own life and in the life of Christ church, why, why we don't see more of what the New Testament promises us that we should see. A famous story of, I think it was Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, when he'd been summoned by the Pope to Rome. And he found the Pope in the treasure store of the Vatican, surrounded by the incredible gold and silver. They were doing something in there. And the Pope looked up and said, well, Thomas, uh, I guess we can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. And Thomas shook his head and said, neither can we anymore say, in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. To the degree that you and I have bought in to the hopes and dreams of this world and 
think we've cut a deal with the Lord if we just behave enough to get all the good things that we want. But really, our hopes and dreams are here. You may be his child, but you're going to be a powerless child. You're not going to look much like he wants his family to look. What should we expect, and I'm done with this, if we are filled with the Spirit? When the Spirit first comes, he convicts us of sin. I've, I've heard people say, it was so wonderful, everyone was moved, there were no tears at all. People just all professing faith. Well, I know people come to Christ in different ways, but at some point, if there's not conviction of sin, it's hard for me to believe that there's been true salvation. Why? If, I think that's one of the reasons that so many of us are relatively joyless about our faith. If you come up to me in my yard down there, in, in, and I'm working in my yard down in Knoxville, and you say, oh, I found you, I found you, uh, you know, I'm going to be like, okay, uh, can I get back to work? But if I'm lost hiking in the Smokies, and I'm out of water and out of food, and I'm remembering all the stories of people who've gotten lost and have died in the Smoky Mountains, and then you come across me, I'm going to be celebrating because I know I was lost and now I'm found. I was dead and now I'm alive. When the Holy Spirit comes to a person, he convicts us of sin. He shows us to ourselves. That's why uh, many of the uh, Obed's son, Tim Keller, have been quoting what was actually a Jack Miller line, but Tim used to quote it all the time and had it on their bulletin at Redeemer. And it's that this is the good news of the gospel. You're so much worse than you would ever dare admit and so much more deeply loved by God than you would ever dare dream. That's it. But you will not know the glory of his love for you until you've known something of the darkness of your own heart and your need of a savior. He convicts of sin, then he begins to empower us and give us a taste for the things of God. I knew I'd grown up in a Christian home. I'd run away. I'd married a Jewish girl. We were hellions. And then the Lord began to get a hold of us. And I knew it because all of a sudden, after eight or 10 years of running away, not wanting to be near a church or near Christian people, I wanted to go to church. I wanted to study the Bible. I began to want to know the things of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had come and said, okay, <laughs> you're done running now. Time to come home. He changes us from the inside out. We delight in worship. Lloyd-Jones used to say to the people at Westminster, and you think I'm bad, he, he preached sometimes hour-long sermons, and he, would, he took 14 years to preach through Ephesians. Uh, one of the women of, of uh, Westminster Chapel was in the States for the summer, went back and said, oh good, I didn't miss anything. He's still on finally, my brethren. But he used to, he was a magnificent preacher, and he used to sometimes just stop and say, this is a mark of whether or not you have the Holy Spirit. Are you having a good time right now? Not, am I eloquent, am I, but do you love to be with God's people worshiping the Lord together? That's what the Holy Spirit does. He begins to change you. Well, there are more things. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He begins to grow the life of Christ in the life of 
formerly broken people like you and me. So let me ask you, have you yet tasted and seen the reality of the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living? Have you known him when you run into the back of a dump truck stopped on the highway like my friend Harry did this last week? Where will you be? Do you delight in knowing the Lord? Do you want to grow in his grace? If so, he is more willing to pour out his spirit on you than you are to ask. That's why Jesus said so beautifully in Luke's version of something he also said in the Sermon on the Mount. But in Luke, Jesus said, look, if parents who are evil know how to give good gifts to their children. If their child asks for bread, they won't give them a stone. If they ask for a fish, they won't give them a snake. How much more will your Father in heaven give his spirit to those who ask? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. Father, have your way with us by the power of your spirit. Don't let uh, my words hinder what you want to do in the hearts and lives of your people and in our life together as a congregation. But pour out your spirit on us, I pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.